I'm here with Sue Julians. Sue is the director and practice principal of Barbican Physio, and she has recently written a book about her experiences during the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 to 2021. So we're having this chat in the summer of 2022. So there's a bit of distance uh, between now and the pandemic. So uh, Sue, tell us a bit about this book. How did it come about? Well, first of all, um, I started getting a little bit... Uh, the reason I started being on Twitter, really, in a, in a more substantial way, was because I was worried about my business, if I'm being selfish about it. You know, we had no help, uh, no government help, um, very little help from the professional body, etc., etc. And so I was just trying to campaign for some kind of grant award that was similar to leisure, hospitality and retail that we just didn't get. But then you start to see what, uh, when I looked up from two or three months of utter hell trying to save the business, um, I realized that, that children were really suffering. Um, so I kind of looked up from my desk about June 2020 and um, started to reconnect with friends and, and people I knew and teachers at school and everything. And all the stories of coming back of how, the, how badly the children were struggling was just utterly heartbreaking so so then i started to engage a little bit more online with people who were seeing the same thing because of course this was massively brushed under the carpet or seen as an essential evil a necessary evil Susan, uh, if, if you don't mind me interrupting but how old how old were your own children at that time they were gosh it's two years ago so they would have been 10 and 12 so um, then I started to kind of get, and I, I became a bit of an obsessive Twitter user, really. I think it was more... Did you get addicted? <laughs> I, I, well, it was more, it was more the symptom, not the cause. You know, that, you know, the, the, the massive engagement I had felt like I was doing something, even if it was completely pointless. So when the, the foot came off the gas a little bit with work and there was nothing more I physically could do... Um, then I started to kind of engage more with people and just find out how other people were going. And, and then I started to suffer long COVID as well, because I had had um, COVID in February 2020, very early on. Um, I didn't think it was COVID because in Austria, they kept telling me it wasn't COVID because I didn't have a temperature. And then it was only when I had an antibody test in May that I had antibodies to COVID. And um, because I'd worked so hard and wasn't able to rest because the 1st of March, everything started going wrong with the city panicking in a flat panic. And I'd had, I caught COVID or, or felt really unwell February the 19th. So it was a very short period afterwards. I was still sick. And so I was working really hard. And then I got long COVID. So I started to engage with the ME guys online to say, oh gosh, this is clearly post-viral because I'm going for a run and I'm in bed for two days. What's going on? And so I started to look at that side of it. And then, um, so that, it just kind of took on from there. And then I started to find my voice a little bit with, hang on a minute, I'm a physio. I know a little bit about health and well-being. And what we're seeing here is something we could have predicted, you know, right at the beginning when they said three weeks, it was like, okay, well, three weeks, you know, not great, but whatever. But then when it starts to extend and extend and extend, and you start to think about shielding elderly, you know, and frailty and the risk of death when you drop one rung down the frailty index and all of those kind of things. And you're thinking, how, how, how long can 
did they think this can go on without yeah. resulting in catastrophic damage? And in fact, the book goes to March 2022. So I, it was over a two-year period that I did it. And um, so, so really it's about going in my priors, my bias, my personal situation and how I interpreted it through that. <laughs> and then at the end, just trying to, what can I take with me that's good? What can I leave behind that's bad? What lessons can I learn? Um, and how can I recon my, reconcile myself to what went on? So, so this started off mostly as, I suppose, a series of blogs. You know, you were writing down your thoughts and sharing them on Twitter. And that's how sort of after a while of writing these blogs and sharing some experiences, you, you sort of got, got more and more into it, were a bit bitten by the bug and just yeah. kept on going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it was because I only started the blog in kind of actually February, you know, this February when yeah. I got you and I because I was doing lots of Twitter threads and then a yeah. few people said, you know, can you do a blog so that I can access what you've written from different media, social media? And I said, oh, all right. So when I got COVID for the second time in February 2022, I taught myself how to use WordPress and I designed my website and then started writing it as a blog. And then I literally went through every month, looked at all my Twitter posts, looked at my camera roll, looked at my personal diary, and then wrote a chapter based on around what was happening in each month of the pandemic. And wow, that's so you had sort of your tweets were almost like a, a log of all your experiences during that time. So you had your tweets as a sort of a, a notes for your for your. That people. was my diary. That was the main bit of my diary because I was on mm -hmm. it for hours a day, you know, because I was just like desperately trying to, yeah. you know, find common ground with people and, and, and what have you. So so that's how it kind of came about. And what what was really interesting about it for me was. I've never thought of myself as being a writer, but you know what? As physios, we communicate with patients all the time yeah. and we communicate complicated science in simple ways to our patients all the time <laughs> because we coach them, we, we teach them about how their body works, we educate them. And so we've been doing this all our lives, really. So, so, so figuring out how to communicate things in a simple way so people could understand, but with a science background is exactly what we do. So. I looked at it and, and to begin with, it was more like writing, okay, this, this is what happened. You got up, had breakfast. It was really dull, you know? And what I really had to, to learn to do was actually, you know, how did this make me feel? What was my reaction to it? Not just what, was, what happened. What was the spiral of effect for me mm. as a human being, as, a, as, a, as an individual? So, so it was much more interesting for me to write when I looked back okay that happened what was that effect on me how did it make me feel how did I see that play out in other people and how can I communicate it in a simple way so people understand why there was this reaction mm. if that makes sense yeah it sounds like it was very personal to you this is you know it, it's not just a log of the events that happened this is really your personal experience of it and your your feelings about it and was it quite cathartic to write the book well this is what this is the primary reason I did it. You know, I had, I'm, I'm not secretive about this. I have postnatal depression. And I write about that in the introduction, the first main introduction of my book. And it took me seven or eight years to feel normal, my normal, not paranoid about my friendships, relationships, not, um, you know, normal, relaxed, content, happy in other people's company, um, 
outward looking, not inward looking. It took me a long time. Hmm. I didn't want this to happen after the pandemic. So I thought, I've just got to, it's like we're going on a bear hunt. You can't go around it. You can't go over it. You've got to go through it, you know? <laughs> so, you know, I, had, I was like, I've just got to face and acknowledge to myself what I went through so that I can turn the page when I'm able to. When circumstances allow me to turn this page, I want to be able to do it. I don't want to carry this weight with me. Hmm. And so that was the reason I did it. I wanted family historical record and, and I wanted it for catharsis and I want to be able to move on. And I also wanted to, to send it to people who had connected with me online who made a big difference to me. So there were lots of people, yeah. lots of um, souls around who were, who were going through similar but different experiences, parallel, parallel experiences, not shared experiences necessarily, but in the same kind of place as I was. And I wanted to send it to those people just to say thank you for being a friend, basically, through that really tough time. Yeah. Um, and that those were my reasons for doing it I think is it a case that during the pandemic during lockdowns the voices who were speaking up on social media saying this is this is hurting kids or this is hurting me um, this is causing it's doing more harm than good those kinds of things because this was such an insanely polarized situation it became a thing of well if you're against lockdowns you're obviously pro the death of people from COVID, you know, it just became so incredibly just ridiculous. So yeah. how much kind of pushback and grief did you get on social media? Would you do it differently now? Like, I suppose what I'm saying is it was such a contentious subject and probably still is. What was it like to be tweeting about lockdown and being against lockdown? It was absolutely brutal. It nice. was brutal. The response of people, you want people to die. You just want to go to your yoga class or have coffee with another mum friend. You you don't care about the vulnerable. You you know, it was absolutely it was so vicious that the first three months of the pandemic I deleted all of my tweets because I would go in that first summer of the pandemic when everything was really, really rubbish, I would actually taunt myself with the response to some of my tweets in that so if I was up in the middle of the night stressing, I'd read this abuse. Yikes. And I thought, no, I've just got to delete all of that so that I can't see. Because, you know, you know, it's like it's sometimes if you've had a fight with somebody and you've had a nasty email exchange and you, just have, to the, you just have to delete the email and leave it behind and, and, and come to some kind of conciliation with your friend or whatever. But it, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And I was by... I was not the only one by any stretch of the imagination, particularly anybody who spoke up for children was absolutely vilified. And all this stuff about children being resilient, it was on every every newspaper, and it's just like, no, they're not. <laughs> they're adaptable. You know, there's a reason why adults get therapy because of what happened to them when they were a children. It's not that they just it just bounces off them. So it yeah, it was really, really tough. And your question about would I do it differently? I don't think I had the capability to do it differently. I was so upset and stressed myself. I mean, I'd try to after a while, if I got really angry and I wanted to anger tweet or wine tweet, which are both really bad, I'd, I'd learned to walk away and come back and, and still be direct and address what 
upset me, but do it in a way that wasn't an attack. It wasn't like I cornered as a cat, you know, and lashing out. I didn't want to lash out back. I wanted to be able to be constructive with the way I addressed it. Why do you think, like, what do you think was going on with people who were really, really vicious in response? I think there were several things. I think that they were deliberately scared and that that lashing out was a defence of their own health, their children's health and well-being, etc. And I just think everybody was in, under a great deal of stress. And, and because of the different situation, because this was a novel virus, because there was no kind of, and although there were plans for everything else and we should have done things differently from that point of view, nobody really knew what was going on, did they? And some people had different resources, so they could just lock themselves away and it wouldn't be a massive problem for them if they didn't have kids at home or they didn't have you know any of these other risk factors and because this hadn't been analyzed or ever done before they didn't have to they were physically isolated from other people's pain and because mental illness I think and, and and mental distress is definitely seen as less than physical distress isn't it I mean it's not recognized it's seen as a choice mental ill health or mental well-being is seen as a choice. Come on, stiff up a lip, you're British, get on through it. Um, so so it was seen as, as within your power. You know, this this is a war. We're fighting, there was lots of war terminology, wasn't there? Yeah, there was, yeah. And yet what was very obvious to me straight away is that carers going home to home, all those kind of people who had to work in person on zero hours contracts, et cetera, et cetera, they didn't see that. Yeah. Yeah. And and they were they were just insulated from it. So I think the fear and the insulation and obviously the, and the disconnect from the disconnect from everyday life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, but I, I think I agree with you there. Like I think that you know when people were say responding to you really furiously or you know saying that you wanted kids to die or or stuff like that, I think those people genuinely really really thought that. Like I yeah. think yeah, I, you know I'd say it was coming from a place of genuine just fear and terror. Yeah, um, it was such a strange time. It, this period in our history is going to be studied. I think what happens to the population, um, yeah. Okay, moving moving swiftly on from all that terror and disturbance. So obviously, I have heard that it is not easy to write a book. Heard it still. <laughs> <laughs> so, so who? I mean, in the tough times of writing, right? Who and what? inspired you to keep on going with your writing if you were having a bad day or if you were feeling uninspired like are there some people or things that kind of inspired you to keep on going I think really it it was as I say this this need for emotional catharsis you were fueled by anger no well not anger but just what do I reading through that month of tweets and the things that really, and then I would read through all that and then I would mull it over and think okay what do I think about that now and then I would and, and some days I just didn't have the words you know I find that with my own the way that I speak I either nail it or it's completely incomprehensible there's not an awful lot in the middle right? this is so why I edit all videos on the same way myself <laughs> this is why there's so and much I nail it and some days I could write a whole chapter in one go in about three or four hours and it wouldn't need much edit editing. But on some days it, it would just sound nonsensical, clumsy, you know, whatever. And I would just have to walk away from it and think, well, I'm clearly not, I've not thought about it enough to figure out how I feel about it. Yeah. And that's why I can't put it down. 
So the best thing for you to, was really to just stop, stop kind of, uh, sitting and, and trying to get it right and just get up, walk away, come back exactly. to it later. Churn. Let my, let my subconscious kind of churn it. And then it's, it's like thinking about a problem when you, before you go to bed, isn't it? You yeah. think about the problem, you wake up with the answer. Yeah. You know? Sometimes. Either that or you lie awake all night if you're me. <laughs> Depends on the problem, right? <laughs> but um, that, was, that, was how, that was kind of how I went about it. Mm, cool is there anything else you want to tell me about writing the book or what it was like to write a book as a physio I think it was really helpful to have a couple of people to read what I'd written because to begin with I didn't know whether I should have written the book from a physio point of view as in this is all completely wrong we should have done x y and z we should have allowed the old folk to do the tai chi in the park we should have you know or was it my diary was it my memoir what was most more, more important here and so I asked a couple of people who follow me on Twitter to read it for me and um, they gave me some really really helpful feedback um, in the the memoir side of it worked much better so um, they thought that it was better for you to write it as a memoir rather than to be kind of making it a analysis actual of, exercise kind of thing yeah exactly you know the the point made was that you know academics politicians scientists will write an awful lot of books analyzing choices made political scientific choices made but the, my uniqueness of being in the middle of London, being a physio, having ch- children at home, being a small business, that was a cocktail of vulnerabilities that other people didn't have. And so I was able to speak to that uh, in a more unique way than to speak on the analysis of whether something was the right or wrong approach. So I, so I, I kind of changed it a bit. So I still talk about how I was worried about the effects of X you know, but I don't, it's less about this was a bad idea. It's just like, I knew that this would be the outcome because of my education as a physio, if you know what I mean. So there was a professor, um, a professor of sociology who looked at it, a professor of global health that looked at it. And I got just a few friends, a more kind of, uh, not necessarily scientists or academics or whatever, but who, there were two or three other people that sort of gave me feedback about about it. Um, and that was really helpful. And uh, a science uh, journalist um, met me for coffee, gave me advice on on how to get a book published, which was amazing. Was Incredibly so kind. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> very, very kind of them. And and just to run me through how it works, because of course I don't know, and I don't know. Um, you know, obviously, it's if you don't have an in, and I'm not a known author. And everybody's written a book about the pandemic because so many people will have done. How do you how do you approach getting it published and or even finding out it's interesting? I've written it for me, for my kids. Is it interesting for anybody else? I didn't know. Can you just tell me if this is interesting? Is you know how it how it came back and and everybody said, look, the personal stuff is 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 the best. The way that you've described it, what you see and what you felt is much better than everything else. And why you felt what you felt from your physio point of view was also helpful as well the way that you could explain why you had this reaction to certain things certainly from reading the few blog posts that you've done you know which will turn into the book my favorite parts where you you know where you really speak personally about what it was like for you um, yeah. and I like in one of those posts in fact probably in a few of them you you basically acknowledge you say look I'm not saying that I had the worst coronavirus pandemic ever 
A lot of people had it much worse than me, but this is who I am. This is what happened to me and my family and my business and my situation. You know? I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that I think obviously I I need to acknowledge and and hopefully I do in the book that you know I'm a white privileged woman living in a nice part of London with a nice life. And if I felt like this, can you imagine how rubbish it was? For yeah. people who didn't have my privileges, yeah. and none of these people have a voice, you know, they're not necessarily got the the, the spare time to articulate this. They mm. just suffered. They suffered in silence. Nobody saw it. And so, as I say, I was lucky. I am lucky. I am lucky with my life. I am lucky in life. Um, but this broke me, you know. Yeah, and as you say, you had a lot more resources than many, and it probably broke a lot of people. Um, so it's good that somebody writes about what that was like, I think, you know, because I think even if people disagree with you, even if people say no lockdown was necessary, we had to have it to save lives, more people would have died. Um, I think those are very valid. Yeah, sure, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe. I don't actually know. But I think even if you think that, even if you think lockdown was 100% necessary, we should have gone in sooner, stayed in it longer that still doesn't refute the fact that what it was actually like for you and your family and your business. So yeah. you can have whatever opinion you like about whether it was necessary, but that doesn't take away from how you actually experienced it and how difficult it was yeah. for you. And I think also for others, uh, for yeah. very many others, you know? Yeah. My, one of my friends said to me who, who read it, she said, bits of your book made me cry. Yeah, because she probably relate to it as well. Yeah. Because she related to it. She said, why aren't we talking about this? So many of us went through this to a lesser or greater extent. Mm. And yet we're just kind of carrying on. And, you know, it's important to reflect that these lockdown harms were not calculated in advance. There was no modeling for them, or at least no publish out, pub published modeling. Yeah. It, the, the information was not collected during, and it doesn't look like a lot of it's going to be in the COVID inquiry anyway. The effect on children wasn't even in the initial brief for the COVID inquiry. It's been added in now after great uproar. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it, they're trying to, I mean, the ONS has published quite a lot of data on, you know, the 100,000 children who haven't returned to school ever since lockdown one. Um, so, so they've been publishing quite a lot of good data, but it's certainly not something that was modelled. So, and that's why other people could deny it. It was only about COVID. It was about nothing else. It, it's, it's a real shame that so many very important conversations happened on Twitter, which is a platform that basically forces people to be as combative as possible um, because there were really important discussions to be had. It, it is the case that if you lock down a society, you're going to do harm to some people. And there's really no use at all in just denying that. So there could have been an important conversation in our society about how do we calculate the risks and benefits of things? How can we plan for this in the future? What you know, we could have had a mature conversation about it. And instead, it all took place on this platform, which is basically a video game where you score <laughs> points for giving out about other people or crapping on them. That I mean, it's insane that this is. The platform that we've used to have yeah. these really important discussions. Yeah. I mean, my own point of view is I, 
I'm very sympathetic to the to the point that I've heard a really good analogy before. Um, it's like a fire extinguisher. Lockdown is like a fire extinguisher. You put out the fire and then the fire isn't that bad. And everyone says, oh, see, we never needed that fire extinguisher. You see where I'm going with that? So that's, yeah, yeah. and I, I can see that. I can see how you could argue that we did need the lockdowns. It would have been even worse if we hadn't had them. All that kind of stuff. I can see a good argument for that. But I cannot understand how you can just continually deny that there definitely must have been some kind of harm to children, especially those in danger, especially those who were literally locked up with their abusers. You know, just so much horrendous stuff happened because of lockdown. And you should be able to say that and at the same yeah. time acknowledge that you can see them maybe more people would have died if there yeah. had been less lockdown. You know, I, I remember tweeting this a while ago saying, if we had been given a, a piece of maths, an equation at the start of the pandemic and said, um, you can lock down and for every one person's life that you save, so for every person over 80 whose life you save, um, four children will be neglected and abused, um, probably damaged forever, possibly sexually abused, um, more so than they would have been. Um, how, how do you feel about that? Is that worth it? Like, would you, would you trade? Because that's what it does. Yeah. I don't know if those are the numbers. I'm not saying that it's one to four. But no, what I'm sure. saying is that there is, there is a calculation, there's a consideration to be done there, which it yeah. was absolutely impossible to do on the hellscape yeah. of Twitter. And it's well, such a shame. Is, I mean, it was so difficult because it was clearly some kind of trolley dilemma where you don't know what's behind the wall on one side yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you don't actually and we can't rerun the experiment again so mm -hmm. having this kind of fight over how many it's safe and i i certainly don't have the scientific background no. to to come up with nobody. the right answer and nobody does because yeah. everybody's still fighting against it now but what i would say is that obviously people use this swiss cheese model that you know some of these layers of protection may be a bit rubbish but collectively all together they're very effective whereas I hated that model because each one of those layers of protection represented a harm to children as far as I could see. Yeah. So, you know, the kind of isolation or the, you know, mask wearing or the whatever, these were all harms. And so take the rubbish ones away. Please take the rubbish ones away. Yeah. Because yeah. there was still kind of an attitude of going for zero COVID, killing things stone dead so that it would never come back again. And a lot of people sold that idea. You know, you've got a guy who, Thomas Pieo, who sold this, the hammer and the dance, you know, where you lock it down and then you just release a bit and then you lock again. And then you shouldn't have to do too much as long as you've got decent tests and trace. I mean, a lot of people talked about that. And that South Asia, in Asia, they, they successfully done that look to Asia, et cetera. But it was, that clearly was a lie, you know, no one has managed to shut it down and it be done or be kept on top of, and particularly with the UK being so interconnected and those sort of mm -hmm. things. But as I say, it's not really worth having that argument again because people are so entrenched in their positions that there's never going to be any consensus on that, or at least not for 10, 20 years perhaps, until people are far enough away from it to look back on it objectively. Yeah. I wonder what I wonder what the kids will think of it. That's what I often wonder. Like I wonder what the, the kids who were the kids who were between ten and fifteen 
what are they going to like what will be their memories of it what will their what will be their opinion of how the adults of the world managed the crisis you know um that'll be yeah. interesting to see yeah my daughter's written a diary mm-hmm. and i haven't read it i haven't asked to read it or whatever but oh my goodness that would just be a heartbreaking read yeah yeah because they both, mine both struggled i don't know i don't know many children who didn't struggle i mean there was the odd ones that actually liked the introverted ones they actually really liked it to begin with um that would have been me i would have loved it i wouldn't have come out a functioning person after two years of isolation but that's the thing i I don't know if i would ever if i had had the option to be alone in my house for months and months on end i don't think i would have probably emerged from that very well yeah i suspect exactly i mean particularly girls you know and some of them were weren't even coming out of their rooms in the end, not even to coming out to eat. And of course, you know, you need to learn how to navigate the world. That's part one of the things of school, isn't it? Is you need to figure out how that all works. And and those are the kids, I mean, my, you know, some of the more sociable kids struggled more early, early on, but now they're quicker to recover. But whereas the, those ones that really enjoyed it are now really struggling. And I, and I think it's the same. The people I used to envy for being insulated from the worst effects of restrictions are now the ones that are going to have the longer lasting pandemic because they're still shielding. They're still wearing masks. They're still avoiding social contact. And I really feel that a lot of them are misattributing that to a fear of covid rather than it being actually you've not done all of these things that you need for your emotional well-being and you're misinterpreting your stress as continued risk from the pandemic and i really think there's a huge amount of that that this isn't real risk anymore as it was two years ago when they've been triple vaccinated and all sorts but they they think it still is that and there's a, there's a proportion of people who are definitely in that camp and they're very worrying, really. I think um, I could very easily see myself in that camp. Like I, after, I'll always remember this trip to Ikea <laughs> after, uh, after restrictions and everything were lifted. I was triple vaccinated. Uh, I hadn't gone out to very many shopping centers, obviously, or places like that in general in the past few years, but um. So I was vaccinated. It was Omicron, which we all know would probably shouldn't be particularly dangerous to someone in my age category. Um, I mean, I knew that long COVID is a risk, but but all in all, I, I think it was reasonable to not be more worried about getting Omicron as a triple vaccinated person in their 30s. I shouldn't be more worried about that than like many other things I could pick up in Ikea. But um, I got to Ikea and there was a crowd there and I just absolutely, the anxiety just, I haven't experienced anything like it since probably my teenage years. And I remember just going, okay, okay, like, it's fine. You're not going to die. <laughs> like, there is no deadly pathogen floating around here. You're all right. Like, I remember going into the center aisle, uh, you know, near the tills at Ikea in the center, there's, you can sort of, um, you can kind of go into the middle and like, just sort of stay as far away from people as possible. And I'm standing there in the middle of this aisle with my empty trolley going okay just get your shit together it's it's going to be fine like if you catch covid you're actually definitely not going to die from it Um, (laughs) this is something else like this this weird fear that you're having now this is not because there is a dangerous deadly virus it's just the atmosphere of the past two years like Mm. 
Yeah, and, you, and you know, we, we know the brain remodels for us. So the predictive model of the brain is you see people, you freak out. Yeah. You see yeah. danger. So a crowd of people. naked face. You see danger, and that's how people have been programmed. And you, can you can you imagine if you were living on your own? I, I saw quite a few people who were, um, you know, office workers. I saw quite a lot of office workers, for example, who were on in a flat share on their own because everybody else had managed to go to their families or whatever, and they hadn't been within six months, uh, two meters of people for six months or longer. <sighs> and, and so I'd touch them, and they'd literally flinch. They'd come in and sit beside me and I'll be taking their history and they'd be really uncomfortable with my proximity yeah. even though I was masked and all of that and good kind of PPE and all that kind of stuff they, they were just nervous to be a meter away from me and and then when I touched them it was even worse but then the second time they came in it was it was almost like just just the therapy of touch and I was reading quite a lot of papers trying to understand this phenomenon because I don't think we've withdrawn it in such a way before mm. and just to see the difference when i did actually physically touch patients and how they would go out visibly more relaxed than when they came in like so we're primates oh. social grooming primates <laughs> that's what that's what it is you, you know was was a, was absolutely astonishing to me and the, you know there was one particular girl who i saw and you know, she, uh, after three or four sessions, she was fine and I discharged her or whatever. But it was, she was a completely different person when I discharged her to that first time. Just completely different. Just from contact, really. Just yeah. from contact and just with contact with me. And it wasn't the, uh, my magic hands, you know. <laughs> it was just, it was just a, a, another human being, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was fulfilling a need, a physical, emotional, mental need. For this person and so when you when you multiply that up and you you think about people who've got single children only children how dreadful would that be single parents i remember us like we had such a short lockdown compared to you in the uk but i can remember during those weeks going thank goodness we have two kids i just remember thinking if you only had one of them like they'd just be so lonely like it'd just be terrible you know no hopefully um hopefully everybody will bounce back and some lessons will be learned maybe maybe it'll teach us to be a little bit more maybe it'll teach us to i don't know what lessons can we learn from all this i think we need to apportion more importance to the things that we don't understand <laughs> yeah maybe so you know the whole idea of the precautionary principle is that you don't do things you do things that you know don't harm <laughs> or whatever <laughs> you know there there is a very strict interpretation of what the precautionary principle actually means but you don't it's not it you know we if we're going to do something we need to evaluate the harms of it first you know you don't just go ahead and say kids are resilient it'll be fine you know it's their job to protect the elderly which is what it became you it know strange children yeah. were sacrificed for the vulnerable how, how can that be right and, and, and this is some and it was an assumption that they would be fine that they would just recover they would just bounce back hmm. so I think that you know if there there are a lot of things that we don't understand necessarily terribly much but, but before you throw away human rights um, our normal lifestyles you've got to understand what you're doing in advance and make a proper evaluation of where is that cost-benefit analysis where does that line fall 
where, okay, this is the, our best fit because there was no challenge to the threat of COVID. So everything was thrown at COVID. Yeah. Um, so we, we need to be a, a lot more honest about hidden effects and known things and ask the experts who know about this, the disaster planners, the sociologists, where were the social scientists in the room when policy was being made? You know, people who know a bit about this stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Everyone was thinking we're just, it's just, it's, it's, it's such a crisis that we don't have time to, to do these, you know, careful evaluations. We just have to stay home and save lives, which is totally understandable. But um, one thing that I worry about is that we'll all remember this and what it was like. And the next pathogen that comes along will be worse than COVID-19. And it'll be a, a situation of, oh, remember that time they locked us all down for months on end and now we're not going to listen to them anymore and it'll kill us all. So that's yeah. my... Well, it's difficult, isn't it? There's always a sense that people are fighting the last war. Yeah. You, you, you know, so, so you know, monkeypox comes along. Oh, it's going to be just as bad as COVID. And of course, it's not going to be just as bad as COVID. It's completely There will be one that comes along that's worse. There will be one that comes along that's worse. And so if you actually have to say, look, actually, this thing is going to rip through in two weeks and you need to stay in your houses, people are not going to believe it next time. They're not going to be how oh, you said two, you said three weeks last time. Look, the next time the government tells me that I'm not allowed to see my friends and that I have to cover my face in public, I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to do it quite as readily <laughs> and with quite as few questions as I had this time. And I think I'm probably not the only person who feels that way. No, I feel then, cross with myself for being the rules. Really yeah. cross. Because, well, we had the Met Police in central London anyway. They were patrolling the streets. So, they, you know, you didn't feel that you... And I, we don't have a garden in central London. We don't, you know, many people don't. So there was no way we could invisibly slight bend the rules and have kids around to play in the garden. We don't have a garden, yeah. right? And and there were uh, police in particularly the parks, making sure people didn't sit down and making sure kids weren't playing and that kind of thing. I mean, and it's very extreme. It's really extreme. If you had said to someone, if you had said to someone in 2018, a virus is going to come along with an infection fatality rate of, well, I know it's most, much disputed, but it's not like, it's not, you know, 20%, the infection fatality rate, you know, it's not like world ending kind of apocalypse novel type level of infection fatality rate. So if you had said to someone, yeah, a virus will come along and there will be police out patrolling to make sure that people are staying in their homes and not sitting on park benches. I'm trying to imagine. Yeah. What there was that one would... story of a, a two wee boys were building a snowman in the park and they were told they couldn't and they had they got sent home to build one in the garden they didn't have, right? So, so, so you know, <laughs> in case you're in the city centre. And so the whole kind of job, everything was taken out. And by then we kind of knew that it was by winter we knew that that wasn't really much of a risk no no i don't know so it was strange and very unsettling times and i think we'll all be a little bit changed by it mm. um yeah let's end this whole thing on a bit of a brighter note which writers do you admire and what books are you read in that well i have to say i couldn't because i was so stressed <laughs> i couldn't read a book for two years for the two years of the pandemic your concentration was completely shot. You I didn't have the brain space to 
to think about anything else. Um, if you were to ask me who my favorite author was, I would say somebody like Elif Shafak. I actually really like reading female writers with female voices. I don't, um, I don't know that writer at all, so I'll have to look. Oh, um, there's, there's a wonderful book um, called 10 Minutes and 42 Seconds in This Strange World. And it, yeah, I'll, get, I'll, I'll send you some recommendations. She, apps, she just writes beautifully. Turkish, lives in London. Absolutely wonderful. Um, so, so that sh so she's my favourite author, um, in that sense. So, but yeah, we'll have to look her up. Well, um, this has been a great chat. It was supposed to be mostly about uh, writing, and it ended up being mostly about. We didn't talk about effective altruism at all, did we? Oh, yeah, we have to get into that. Jesus, Sue. Should we do, that? Should we do a little bit on that? Do you know what? We should take the opportunity while we're here. Yes, yes, yes. Um. How do you feel about effective altruism ever since joining our little happy band of physio do-gooders? Yeah, I, I think it's brilliant. It's perfect for me. It's the perfect approach for me because, you know, you give money over the years and you never know whether it's actually reaching the end point in a way. And I actually also find myself, I get really put off by pictures of suffering because you can't help the person in the picture. And you can't help enough people. And so it just makes me feel guilty yeah. uh, rather than anything else. And so, and because you have to know an awful lot about the different charity in order to know it's making the most effect. The fact that this has been taken out of my hands and somebody else has done all that, and I don't need to see disturbing images, yeah. it, for me, it works really well. I mean, I, I think it appeals to, with me anyway, it really appeals to my sense of like a good sense and rationality. And it's a little bit what we were talking about earlier when it comes to the fact that you have to, you have to pay a price. You can't have everything. So if you choose this intervention, it's going to be at the expense of something else. Um, and yeah. I was talking to Dr. Akil Bansal. He's the founder of High Impact Medicine. And he used the analogy of, of a kidney transplant. Like if you have one kidney, you have to do a triage and figure out who gets that kidney, where it will do the most good. And I think it makes sense to apply this to charitable giving as well. There is yeah. only so many resources that I have or you have or, or anyone has. So I'm kind of going, if you have a hundred pounds and if you understand the principle that a hundred pounds can do a hundred times more good in charity A than it can in charity B, then it, it just, I mean, it's hard to argue against giving it to the charity where it does the most good. So I think that's really at the core of EA for me anyway. It just, it really appeals to just sense. <laughs> and I think it fits in with the whole thing for me coming out of the pandemic, how will I behave differently, right? Yeah. So I, I've always been into trying to make as many, because I'm privileged, I want to be able to be an ethical consumer. Yeah, like, yeah. So, so I, you know, not only do I want my charitable giving to have the most impact, it's like, you know, the upward transfer of wealth during the pandemic to big tech companies, etc., it was, was enormous. You know, Bezos got 17 billion pounds richer of the first lockdown. That should, that should instill shame in everybody. How, why did that happen? How did that happen? Trying to be a bit more thoughtful about this, doing that investigation, is, am I spending money in an ethical way? Um, uh, and I've always tried to do that, but I'll make more of a concerted effort to try and see that through because I don't want to live in that kind of capitalist world. And we, we end up with the capitalism we deserve, I think. 
that's so, quite a good yeah that's quite a good way to put it yeah um so so we want we all need to look after each other a little bit and be a bit more empathetic but you have to be consistent if you if you want you know people to have decent pay proper holiday paid sick etc you should only buy stuff from companies that give that to their staff you see this is how like once you start thinking in terms of altruism or effective altruism i, I think it does spread out into other areas of your life you start to sort of see through see things through a different lens yeah um, you sort and you sort of start to think of the about- effect you're having in the world yeah. Absolutely. And that's why effective altruism really made sense to me, because that's why I, why I and I, I, you know, it's very difficult to be an ethical consumer, actually, because <laughs> you, you yeah. pull those layers of the onion, the onion off and you find something you weren't expecting to. And a lot of people kind of ethically wash what they're doing and, 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 and make it appear that they're not using slave labor in Bangladesh or whatever, where they're actually, they actually are. So it's, it's not easy, but we should try. <laughs> well said yeah all right well so it's been a total pleasure we'll be talking again i'd say very soon <laughs> Always like probably pleasure. tomorrow in the whatsapp group because <laughs> he was giving well <laughs> ah listen it's uh it's lovely chat and uh we'll be talking i'll see you, you oh so no wait 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 where can people contact you they can contact me on my website which is sujulians.com or on Twitter, I'm SNJ under slash 1970. Yes, that is the year I was born. <laughs> Good <laughs> woman. Um, but yeah, yeah, those, those are the easiest way. Or, or sue at barbicanphysio.co.uk is my email. Brilliant. All right, suejulians.com. And uh, Sue, we'll be chatting. I'll see you now. Bye. Great.